Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to Pharmacy to Dose, the critical care podcast. We're discussing critical care and its pharmacotherapy in a fun and entertaining manner. I'm your host, Nick Peters. Wherever you are and however you may be listening, thank you you. Today we are joined by a special guest and friend of the pod, Corinne Berger. So Dr. Corinne Berger is a neurocritical care clinical pharmacist at New York Presbyterian Hospital, Weill Cornell Medical Center. She received her doctor of pharmacy from the University of Florida and went on to complete her PGY-1 pharmacy residency at Yale New Haven Hospital and her PGY-2 critical care residency at the University of Illinois Medical Center at Chicago, where she acted as chief resident. Dr. Berger currently serves as a member at large for the SCCM Clinical Pharmacy and Pharmacology, the CPP section, the director at large elect for the ASHP section of Clinical Scientists and Specialist Executive Committee, and director of education and professional development for the New York State Council of Health System Pharmacists. Curran, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So I live on the East Coast as well, and, and visiting New York City is an absolute highlight, something that I, I, my wife and I do at least once a year, always a great time. Now, you probably have a unique perspective working in the city as well. So what would you say is kind of like your favorite and maybe least favorite part of working in you know, arguably the, the biggest city in America, if not the world? Well, honestly, I love the diverse group of people, the fact that there's so much to do and that... It's a really fast-paced environment, so it keeps everybody moving. There's always a lot of buzz and excitement. There's a lot of large academic medical centers all in one city, so there's lots of really good networking opportunities and the ability to just quickly reach out to anyone within a few blocks radius and keep track of local things that are going on. So those are some of my likes. And then, uh, you know, I think the least favorite things are probably – some of the traditional New York City related things. It's very expensive to live here, uh, as you probably know. And New York State does have some uh, more restrictive pharmacy laws, and at times that can limit what we can do as compared to what other states are allowed to do. So we have been working on some grassroots advocacy efforts to push things forward, but uh, those would probably be some of my kind of lesser <laughs> favorite things. The, the good and the evil of living in the big city, right? Absolutely. Now, a follow-up New York question. I really couldn't help myself. So for any of us visiting the New York City area, what's your favorite pizza place there? Uh, uh, I would have to say probably Grimaldi's in Brooklyn. Um, I went there before my Brooklyn half marathon last year. It was the perfect carb load, the perfect pizza. I'm sure there's really hundreds of awesome pizza places in the city, but uh, that's a solid go-to. Oh, that sounds delicious. Now, what's your? Are, are you just a like a plain pizza person, like cheese only, or what's your what's your kind of go-to order when you go? I like everything, but you know, if you have really good pizza, plain cheese is the right way to go. So. I like to do plain cheese a lot. 
solid recommendation. I, I completely agree with that. Although I am partial to the square pieces at Prince Street Pizza. I'm not 100% sure where that is, but absolutely delicious. You're right, though. I, I think any block you turn on there, you're going to find something good. Now, I we just started recording, but I, I think we're in the trust tree here, so I'm, I'm going to be honest with you. So when, when I was a resident and I first went through kind of the neuro ICU, it was very frustrating to me. I think it's my inherent lack of patience, and I felt like there was a, a lot of kind of watching and waiting. And so, you know, kind of leading into, into that, because I think now, as I've been exposed to it, there's obviously a lot, a lot more, you know, interventions and things that we do, but what initially attracted you to kind of working as a neurocritical care pharmacist? Well, if I'm being honest, when I first uh, was finishing residency, I wanted a NICU job, like most other critical care residents. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the job market was what it was, and I also wanted to be at an academic medical center with students and residents and research opportunities. Uh, and so my current position opened up, and I snagged it. And then, you know, interestingly, once I started really learning and appreciating the nuanced world of neurocritical care and being able to speak that language, now it's become a specialty that, you know, I really can't leave. And I would say rather than what attracted me to this position, but what keeps me in this position um, is un unlike areas like home and cardiology that have, you know, RCTs to guide management, in the neuro we aren't always that lucky, and so we're really able to use clinical judgment and our pharmacologic knowledge to make individualized patient recommendations. So not to say that we can do whatever we want to do, but there's a lot more freedom uh, in the absence of data to, um, to be able to have a more broad range of options. So there is a special language that you learn. Is that something like when you get this job that they just kind of like hand you like a handbook of all those terms that none of us understand? <laughs> there is a lot of independent learning that goes on for sure. And I know when I have students and residents, it, it is very challenging for them. Usually the first week or two is just, you know, trying to figure out what we're even talking about. Um, so yeah, I could absolutely appreciate that it didn't come all at once and I'm still learning. So how did you specifically become interested in status epilepticus? And then just a quick aside for, for the listeners and yourself, I, I think I may be saying, you know, I may interchange status and status epilepticus here. You know, just think of them as, as interchangeable. Um, but how did you become interested in it? Well, you know, kind of alluding to all the same things with neuro-ICU and being able to individualize treatment and things like that. I, I think status is an area where pharmacists can really have a dramatic impact, and it's a condition that allows me to use my highest level of pharmacy knowledge. So I'm involved in drug selection, understanding all the cool and unique mechanisms of action of uh, you know some of the traditional agents as well as some of the novel agents, the non-standard dosing that we use, monitoring not only AED levels but for adverse effects all the drug interactions, titrating trips. So it really allows me to combine everything, uh, use my entire pharmacy skill set, uh, and really see an impact on the patient. You're exactly right. I, I was literally trying to rack my brain thinking of um, you know, common presentations where you're doing all of that. And then also potentially kinetic dosing and adjusting on top of that. So you're, you're kind of, you get to flex a little bit. That's a good thing. <laughs> 
Absolutely. So before we kind of dive into anything, I think the first sh- the first thing to kind of clarify for us is, you know, what exactly is status epilepticus and how does that differ from maybe just a, I don't want to say simple seizure, but just a, a classic seizure? So a seizure is basically some sort of abnormal electrical disturbance in the brain. Um, and status epilepticus is is prolonged seizure activity. And in the past, we used to define this as 30 minutes of continuous seizures. Uh, and a few years ago, that definition was actually changed to five minutes or more of continuous. And it can either be clinical or electrographic seizures, meaning seizures you would only see on an EEG, or it can be recurrent seizures um, where you don't return to baseline between seizures. And um, you know that was sort of done to help us identify the condition earlier and, and be able to be much more aggressive up front. And I, I should also clarify that, you know, when we're talking and referring to status or when you hear people mention status, we're really talking about generalized status where, you know, the whole brain is involved uh, and not focal status, which really involves one focal part of the brain and is less neurotoxic. So I think sometimes, especially in the pharmacy world where you're not necessarily reading the continuous EEG, but looking at a note, you may see oh, this patient had tons of recurrent focal seizures. Why aren't we intubating them and, and being more aggressive? Uh, but this is really different. And when we think of status, we're, we're thinking of generalized status. And so when we're reading, like, review articles or, you know, um, doing PSAPs or something like that, and this comes up, what you're saying is th- the the reviews and things are focusing on generalized status and not like they will be very clear when they're talking about focal am i am i interpreting you correctly there that is generally true yes okay the algorithm for focal seizures um is a little bit less aggressive than generalized status now are there any different def you know further um definitions or classifications of status epilepticus or is it kind of you know you you have the prolonged seizure activity and, and you are just in status? Or are there further kind of um, classifications potentially down the road of this presentation? Yes. So like I mentioned, status epi- epilepticus is um, this prolonged seizure activity for five minutes or more. Uh, we do also have a definition for refractory status. Uh, and this is where your seizures persist despite two anti-epileptic agents and generally, that's defined as a benzo, which counts as your first agent, and one uh, additional AED or anti-epileptic agent. And then super refractory status, this isn't as clearly defined in the guidelines, but usually we consider you to be in super refractory status uh, when your status persists after administration of a con- continuous infusion anesthetic. So as I'm listening to your description, the picture that popped into my mind is um, a patient presenting with convulsive seizures. So is this how most patients present, or is there some some variety um, when they when they present? I would say there's two typical presentations, uh, convulsive and non-convulsive status. And convulsive is exactly what we typically think of and what we see in movies, that tonic-clonic movement, rhythmic shaking. Um, but we can also identify status via an EEG, uh, for example, patients who are post-cardiac arrest or patients who may just be altered in some way, uh, and they may have subclinical status uh, or status that we don't see unless we hook the patient up to an EEG. 
Now, can the presentation change throughout the course of the hospitalization? So if they present with convulsive, and then can that then change to non-convulsive or vice versa? Or, you know, is it is it something that can that can change as the patient, you know, goes along their hospital stay? Yes. And this is why it's critically important to monitor these patients with continuous EEG. So um, patients may initially present with convulsive status, uh, and they can remain in convulsive status for maybe 20 or 30 minutes, and all of a sudden those convulsions uh, may stop, and you may be patting yourself on the back for sort of, you know, curing them, but once you put them on EEG, you realize they're actually still in status, and, you know, there's only so long that you can have those tonic clonic movements, um, but you may not have the physical appearance, but still actually be in status. Does their specific presentation change the emergency or urgency of the treatment? Like, for example, would you feel the need to treat someone with convulsive status epilepticus much more timely than, say, you know, non-convulsive? It shouldn't, but I think we end up being more aggressive when you're looking at the patient and you can actually see the seizures and recognize and identify them early on and, you know, run into the room and get your medications than, you know, when you're hooking them up to EEG, potentially waiting on a read. So it, it shouldn't because status is status, but uh, I think in real practice, we do see uh, convulsive status potentially being treated more aggressively, at least initially. You can kind of see the correlation with treating delirium here, right? You almost think of the non-convulsive as the hypoactive and then the convulsive being the hyperactive. And I think we all more aggressively treat the person who's agitated. So it would make sense that that would translate as well into the um, treatment of convulsive versus you know, non-convulsive status epilepticus. Yes, yeah, that's a good point. Are there are there any you know disease states or risk factors that predispose patients to you know having seizures or you know obviously the more severe form of that being status epilepticus? Yes, so I think um, this is where it's important for us to get a history. I mean, the most obvious thing really is epilepsy. So both um, patients with epilepsy who are compliant with their medications may uh, have a seizure that progresses to status and then also patients with epilepsy who are not compliant. And that really is the most common cause of status. Then you have other um, risk factors, such as any neurologic injury, such as patients with TBI or intracerebral hemorrhage, subarachnoid hemorrhage, meningitis, electrolyte disturbances, primarily uh, sodium and glucose, patients who are hypoxic or have a cardiac arrest, uh, autoimmune encephalopathy is something that we have become much better at diagnosing and, and recognizing and thinking about. Uh, and then drugs of abuse and, of course, just standard medications. What would you say are some medications that, when you see, automatically kind of gets your red flag up? You know, are there, are there ones that are, you know, um, classic ones or things that you all really look for, you know, as you're um, doing a med rec on, on patients admitted? Yeah, I think um, it really is important to check all meds just to make sure. I think when, when you're not sure, especially if there's a medication that would be very easy to discontinue, it's worth looking into it. But certainly some of the common offenders that we're always thinking about are the penicillins, cephalosporins, carbapenems, some of your antipsychotics like clozapine or 
antidepressants like uh, your TCAs or lithium, uh, and then flumazenil. So, you know, you may actually be giving this drug to, you know, reverse uh, a benzo and potentially causing seizures. Now, when when these patients present, I obviously the um, initial um, real treatment plan is, you know, IV benzos and things as such, but are there any, you know, disease states or kind of like those risk factors that you mentioned, you know, thinking of sodiums and things that maybe need immediate treatment, you know, maybe focusing on non-anti-epileptic, um, you know, drug administration? Definitely. And this is where trying to determine the etiology of status uh, is really important. You know, unfortunately, we're not always able to do that but we should still do our full workup. So uh, particularly if it's electrolyte abnormality, like a very low glucose or a low sodium or a a dramatic decrease in sodium, that's something that's very easy to to fix right away. Also trying to identify is this patient potentially have a history of alcohol abuse and this may be an alcohol withdrawal seizure or were they on medications that should be removed if possible? Um, Sometimes if there's no clear cause, we may even you know, consider meningitis and start empiric coverage. So uh, a lot of the AEDs may be treating a true seizure pathology, but if there is an underlying cause, the only way that we'll effectively treat the status is by identifying and treating that underlying cause, kind of like implementing vasopressors for a patient who's in septic shock. Do you find yourself especially thinking about, like, the, you know, alcohol use or potentially, um, you know, Wernicke's or thiamine deficiency or things like that, do you find yourself, if in doubt, almost, you know, erring on the side of caution and just preemptively treating for some of that, kind of like you alluded to with with meningitis and kind of putting, you know, antibiotics up front? Um, We can. uh, You know, I think a lot of people now think there's pretty low risk with initiating thiamine. but we wouldn't, you know, we would do that as like an add-on treatment, but certainly continue them on the status algorithm. Uh, what it might affect is how many AEDs they would potentially go home on, uh, but less of an effect on that initial treatment, except maybe like the addition of thiamine. And so if it is for something like that, they still generally do get discharged on an antiepileptic, and then they kind of get, you know, tapered down as an outpatient. Is that generally how, how that works? I would say for a patient who presents with clear alcohol withdrawal, it really does depend. Um, if if they were quickly treated with benzodiazepine therapy um, and their risk of recurrent withdrawal is low, they, they may not end up being discharged with an antiepileptic. Probably more commonly, they'll be discharged on at least one AED um, as opposed to potentially multiple AEDs like another patient. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Okay. Now, when patients present, I think, well, not I think, everyone agrees, you know, our first-line treatment is benzodiazepines. So, and I think the longer you're in practice, you find that, you know, people end up having their favorite or preferred. So, do you have a a favorite or preferred um, benzo that you like to use as your initial treatment? Uh, 
I mean, I'm pretty boring, so I just stick with lorazepam. I don't... I'm, I'm laughing. I don't think that's boring. I think following the, the guidelines isn't necessarily a bad thing. I think deep down, I was kind of hoping for, you know, you had some sort of preference, you know, based on some, you know, use or something that, that you might have done there. So I, I wasn't 100% sure. Um, does their IV access affect your answer? It does. So, you know, the one thing I'll say is the guidelines recommend lorazepam 0.1 mg per kilo given as four milligrams at a time. Most people underdose this. So um, even though it is a guideline recommended benzo and dosing, um, there was just an analysis of the ESIT trial, which is going to be one of our very, very few randomized trials that will be coming out hopefully by the end of the year in, in status. Uh, but they, they just looked at a small group of patients uh, and looked at the benzo administration, and a very small percentage, like 15% of um, adult patients who received lorazepam, actually met the minimum dose requirement. So uh, it may be boring, but it definitely making sure that it's dosed correctly. Uh, and then to answer your follow-up question, if a patient doesn't have IV access, that would change my answer. So I would do IM midazolam, unlike pretty much every other aspect of status. Here we actually have a randomized controlled trial that compared IM midazolam to IV lorazepam, and in patients without IV access, it's just faster and is recommended. So that's what I would do for, in those scenarios. So we're going to put a pin in that dosing comment there just for a second. So we'll, we'll come back to that in just a second. Now, if they didn't respond to a certain medication, say, you know, the initial lorazepam, you know, assuming that they receive the appropriate dose and everything, is it something where you avoid future administrations of that, that you'll kind of switch to another agent, or does that even enter your mind? And then when, when you know, seizures, if there's a recurrent seizure activity, you kind of go straight back to that. Does that is that anything that you consider when treating these patients? No, definitely not. Benzos and repeat doses of benzos are always first line. Uh, if they are refractory to that, that would be followed closely uh, by administration of an AED. And then if that doesn't work, they may potentially need to be intubated and receive escalated care. But we would not avoid benzos or really even other anti-epileptics once you've gone further into the algorithm because it didn't stop the seizure. It may have been either an ineffective initial dose, which we're learning more and more is very common, or maybe the patient may already be in refractory status, so they're not responding uh, completely, but the medication may be still having some effect. So uh, I would not use a lack of response to, to avoid uh, an agent, particularly not a benzo. Now, maybe not a class, but I guess I mean, would that influence your select your individual medication choice within a class? Like if, uh, like if for they benzos, no, but um, I think if a medication didn't work, we would probably go to another agent. In general, we do try to you know mix up the mechanism of action if we can. Um, so I'm not sure that the lack of response, it's just so difficult once you start adding AADs because we know that as more time goes by, your chances of uh, responding to AAD are so low. That's really one of the challenges of treating these patients is, is it that it didn't work at all or is it possible that it is having some effect uh, and maybe they had 50 seizures, but they would have had 100 seizures. And, and so we're always very hesitant to uh, discontinue or, or to really say, 
this didn't do anything, uh, unless we really have clear EEG data that it truly didn't do anything. That act, now that you you verbalize it like that, that actually makes a lot of sense. So kind of going back to the, it sounds like a a preliminary analysis of the of the ESID trial, where you know about fifteen percent of patients received the the recommended you know upfront dose um, for benzos and status epilepticus. And I I had a neurocritical care preceptor who had a who had a great phrase. There's there's ICU dosing and there's neuro ICU dosing, and. It sounds like there there may be more work to be done here, but you know what would you say to you know providers if you were trying to whether it's in a protocol or for a specific patient to try to give them you know try to give larger, more evidence based doses. So I, I love that line too, and I might actually steal it uh, from your preceptor. <laughs> and I, I my favorite is when a student or resident will give me you know lexicomp dosing for agents that are used in status epilepticus, and it's just so far out of the realm, um, the dosing that we do of what you would find in a tertiary resource. But I think that this is where having a policy or guideline or even order sets that can really guide providers to the right initial dose uh, and even prevent delays in order verification for some of these higher doses can be really helpful. I know our pharmacists use our guideline all the time, and uh, you know that helps provide a comfort level with some of the higher doses we use. For benzos in particular, I, I think it's education is just critical. I mean, we could see that even in the setting of a randomized controlled trial, we're still not able to effectively dose benzos. And I think really recognizing that, in this case, underdosing can be worse for the patient than some of those theoretical risks of overdosing, like over-sedation or respiratory compromise. And we do have data in the form of a randomized trial that patients who receive benzos actually have less cardiac and pulmonary side effects than those who receive placebo. So uh, we use that to help, you know, give us comfort <laughs> in using these higher doses. Um, you know, our fellows will tell the residents, I would almost prefer that you may even need to intubate a patient because you overdose them, even though the risk of that is really low, rather than underdose them and keep that patient in status um, where we know just the longer we wait, the harder it is to treat. So kind of like septic shock, again, we want to get that drug in quickly and aggressively, and then you can always peel back later. But it sounds like there's a big culture with it, because to, to hear that from, you know, a fellow or even a potential attending, it kind of creates that culture to where that is what is, you know, expected. And so that I think it probably makes it easier to, you know, follow those guidelines when you have, you know, those, um, you know, providers um, in the in the program kind of having those types of statements. So that's really, really great yeah, advice. Yeah, I, I agree completely. And being able to protocolize uh, those recommendations and even include them in order sets so that uh, providers who are ordering the medications feel more comfortable in, in knowing this is the standard of care is really helpful. When I think it not only applies to the, you know, the inter, I guess you'd say the intermittent dosing, you know, of, of these, but also, you know, when we get into talking about refractory and super refractory, like the, you know, the, the rates of, you know, the benzo drips or even the other continuous infusion sedatives, I mean, it, it can also be a, uh, a point of concern for nurses, right? If it's something where they're not practicing in that unit, those doses are much, much higher than they may have ever seen before. Absolutely. 
So does your dosing of the initial benzodiazepine, for example, we'll use, you know, the, we'll use your preference, the guideline recommended preference. So, you know, 0.1 mg per kg of lorazepam up to four milligrams. You know, does this change if a patient is a chronic alcohol or benzo user? So it doesn't, but I think it makes us more comfortable actually giving that full initial dose or even, you know, redosing uh, and challenging them more quickly than we normally would. But uh, lorazepam 4 milligrams is, is really our go-to in almost all patients, adult patients. So after we had, after we administer the, the benzo, you know, an, an AED or an anti-epileptic um, drug is then generally needed. Now, I think we'll, we'll definitely talk a little bit about all of these agents, but does your hospital have a policy or, you know, it sounds like you do, or a protocol that, you know, do they use one antiepileptic as kind of like the first-line therapy, or is this always something that is a, you know, a patient-specific discussion with the team? We definitely have a guideline that provides a few options, and I think within that guideline, phenytoin and valproic acid are a little bit higher than levetiracetam, but ultimately it becomes a team decision. Uh, and, you know, once you get past that benzo, the data to guide us on agent selection is so minimal, uh, and here we're able to use patient-specific factors to help guide therapy. A lot of times that includes things like their organ dysfunction, um, and especially drug interactions. Well, I think you hinted at, I'd say, probably one of the, you know, bigger controversies is, um, you know, which of these three, you know, the three anti-epileptics that you named, right, um, phenytoin or phosphenytoin, valproic acid versus levetiracetam, um, you know, which one of these should be first line? So I'm kind of a loaded question here, I'm sure, but what are your thoughts on, generally speaking, what should be, you know, the first line AED after they get the benzo at the door? That is the million-dollar question, uh, and my answer to that is whatever you can get the fastest. So a lot of people think maybe phenytoin, valproate is more effective than levetiracetam, but if you have levetiracetam in your Pixis or Omnicell and you can get that started immediately that's your drug of choice. Um, if you have a patient who potentially has um, some drug interactions, and I'll just give you the two that I think are really critical for the NeurICU, valproic acid and meropenem, where you know even one dose of meropenem can bring down your VPA levels to almost undetectable. Uh, and then phenytoin and phosphenytoin with nimodipine, which is you know, a class one recommendation to be used in patients with subarachnoid hemorrhage. So those are those two examples of where there's a very severe drug interaction that would clearly lead you to using another agent. Um, so kind of that in combination with whatever you can get the fastest. But that ESIT trial that I mentioned, uh, that's going to be uh, hopefully wrapping up soon. That's a randomized, multi-center, double-blind trial in pediatric and adult patients who have received a benzo uh, and hopefully that will tell us the winner between um, phosphenitoin, levetiracetam, and valproic acid. And you, you may not know, but why do you think that we that there's been such a hard time having you know head-to-head -head RCTs looking at these anti-epileptic agents? I think with status, 
um, there's so many mixed etiologies and severity of status, as well as just identifying and recognizing patients in status. Um, and then add to that these patients that have been in subclinical status, where you're not even sure how long they've been in status for. Uh, and then the variety of treatments you can add on. It, it just makes it very difficult to study. And so there have been um, some RCTs that have been attempted and sort of had to be terminated for lack of enrollment. Um, we did have actually one agent, allopregnenolone, uh, that ended up not showing any benefit, but that was going to be, that was an RCT that we were very excited about because it was one of the few. But I, I think it's really related to just um, the etiology of status um, is so diverse that it becomes really difficult to attribute uh, a result or a treatment benefit to, to one particular thing. And so when, you know, generally speaking, are there specific groups of patients where you'll recommend the use of one of those agents as kind of your frontline drug or maybe, you know, the opposite, right? You, you want to avoid it. And, you, you know, you mentioned the, the drug interactions, and I think that's, that's something to keep in mind. But is there any, I guess, you know, disease state interaction or things where you'll be weary on using one or you'll really want to use, you know, another, something like that? I think generally it's going to be related to drug interactions. The, the reason we developed the algorithm um, is just to try to make giving first-line therapy or some type of therapy as fast as possible. So, um, you know, as you go through over time and, you know, are adding more and more agents, we may say, oh, well, now their LST is bumped or this happened or they're this type of patient, and maybe we'll be a little more thoughtful. But I really think in those initial stages, um, it's, it's better to just think, let me get drugs to the patient than starting to get creative. Um, and then when you go off the algorithm, it may not be the drug that's in the Omnicell. It may not be uh, the drug that pharmacy is used to verifying. And I think that can end up leading to delays where uh, it, it's really due to some of these theoretical risks and benefits that we're not even sure would pan out. So you've mentioned how, you know, timely treatment is the key here. Why is that so important for patients who present in status? Status develops, uh, it progresses very quickly, uh, and there's a lot of pharmacal resistance that can take place through receptor trafficking. So agents that we initially provide generally are GABAergic agents like benzodiazepines. Um, even though they may initially work, they, over time they're less effective and sometimes not effective at all. And the longer you're in status, the more difficult it is to break the status. Um, and so we've seen that with studies where you add a first agent and you'll have uh, some type of response, and then that response diminishes pretty quickly over time. So if we miss that sort of golden window within the first 30 minutes to an hour, we're really playing catch up, and we're going to have to be so much more aggressive later on uh, than we maybe would have had to be. Well, now it makes sense why the, the best agent is the one that you can get in as, as quick and safely as possible. So I think what would be best now to do, you know, we kind of talked about first-line agents, talked about our initial benzo treatment. You know, I think what would be probably a little helpful here is to maybe do like a little mini review of, you know, kind of like our 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 options for first-line agents. You know, I, I think classically, you know, some of them may be second or even third line, but maybe talk about with some of these, you know, dosing, how do you administer, maybe specific situations to keep in mind, kind of talking about these. How does that sound? Sure, that sounds great. 
So let's let's start here with levetiracetam. Kind of what we'll do is I'll I'll kind of just say the the AED and we'll kind of let you you take the ball from there. Well, levetiracetam uh, certainly has become so much more popular over the last few years. Uh, I started practicing uh, about eight years ago, and we have shifted even with seizure prophylaxis and first-line agents. Uh, when I first started, you know, you would almost be laughed at for suggesting to use levetiracetam for status, uh, and now it's an accepted agent, so much so that, you know, it's one of the agents in, in that ESID trial, one of the arms in the trial. Um, usually what the guidelines recommend is starting with a one to three gram load. Uh, that ESID trial I mentioned does do a weight-based load uh, up to 4.5 grams, but I don't think most institutions are, are going that high. We usually do two grams. Um, the great thing about levotrastam is there's not too much to worry about. It is renally eliminated, so uh, if somebody's in renal failure on dialysis, you would dose reduce. Uh, the big thing is behavioral disturbances. So uh, we absolutely have seen this in patients on levetiracetam. Do we overcall it? Maybe we do because patients in the ICU can certainly have lots of other reasons for behavioral disturbances. Um, but that's, that's really the main thing to look out for. And I would say in a patient with status, this is not something that we consider until much later on in the course, more uh, closer to when we're talking about which agents we should be weaning off. It um, doesn't have any drug interactions. My fellow was just asking me today, is, is there anything we really, you know, need to worry about? And it's just a really nice, clean drug from that perspective. Well, sometimes it's nice with everything we have to worry about that there can be a drug that we can use that we don't have to worry about 10 other things with it at the same time. So the the next one I want to talk about is is phenytoin or, or phosphenytoin. I'm wondering if um, you know, I think my overarching question with this, I think it was as I was, you know, looking into statuses, you know, do we use phenytoin and phosphenytoin, you know, because of the status quo kind of, you know, we've always done this? I mean, I, I think that's certainly part of it. And, you know, in the lack of data, experience is important. So, you know, globally, we've been using phenytoin and phosphenytoin for many, many years. And so, you know, we don't have randomized data necessarily or strong randomized data, but we do have retrospective data, and uh, we know that it works. Um, usually, we'll load phenytoin uh, or phosphenytoin as 20 mg per kilo. So, phosphenytoin is just the pro-drug of phenytoin. One thing, you know, I often hear is oh, it's better because you can give it faster, but you, know, you just have to remember that phosphenytoin does need to be converted to phenytoin, and that takes some time. So, as far as the time it takes to administer, it's usually a wash when you when you factor that in. Phenytoin has it's such a pharmacy drug because it has so many nuances. Uh, like I mentioned, that rate of administration that we max out at 50 mg per minute. It's formulated with propylene glycol. It's only compatible in NS. There's very specific concentrations that you have to mix it at for it to be stable. Um, and then the monitoring. So we're very used to monitoring with levels, and we can sort of maybe talk about levels at the end, but it's, it's a drug with a narrow therapeutic index um, that we do have to monitor. And, and with a lot of these agents, I've been talking about, you know, be aggressive and push the doses, uh, but because phenytoin has that narrow therapeutic index, you know, we, we will push the levels a little bit higher, but at a certain point, phenytoin itself can cause seizures, so we don't want to take too much of a cowboy uh, approach with it. 
Fosphenitoin does have some benefits over phenytoin. Uh, I did mention you, you can give it faster, even though it does require that conversion. It has much better compatibility with other diluents other than NS. You can give it intramuscularly. Um, and, you know, if you're using some lower doses, you can give it as IV push, so potentially even much faster and not necessarily requiring a diluent. Otherwise, as far as um, mechanism of action and, and efficacy, there shouldn't really be a difference between the two. Now, do you all have both agents um, on your hospital formulary? We do. We surveyed a lot of different hospitals, and um, it's really a little bit of a mix. So phosphenitoin has been a little bit on and off shortage, and um, if you can't get the generic, the brand ends up being more expensive. We recently changed our guidelines uh, to include phosphenitoin as our bolus agent of choice, where we're you know, using those higher doses that are more likely to cause arrhythmias and hypotension, and we'll use phenytoin as our maintenance agent. Some institutions have converted completely to phosphenitoin, others use all phenytoin, uh, and some do a similar mix like we have. Yeah, our our, our um, health system had changed to phosphenitoin exclusively, I think, about a year ago or so. And so the, the next agent, valproate sodium, you know, ironically, when you look at the, at the guidelines, it has the same class and level of evidence recommendation as um, phenytoin and phosphenytoin. Now, these were um, last updated in 2012, but um, I thought that was, um, I wasn't expecting that, that those both, those were the two um, highest, you know, class and level of evidence out of, out of the AEDs that we commonly use. Yeah, I think everybody ends up being scared of alproic acid because of the potential for hepatotoxicity and um, ammonia issues, but we, we have used, I will say culturally, we end up gravitating more towards phenytoin. Uh, and I think, you know, this is one scenario where it's an either or. So, you know, we may say we're pharmacists and we can manage any drug interaction, uh, but the drug interaction between phenytoin and valproic acid is significant and uh, it changes over time. And so even the best pharmacists, you know, can be chasing levels. And I think the risk of those changing levels and potentially setting the patient back into status, because of that, we do try to avoid the combination. And so because of that, we just end up using more phenytoin. But valproic acid, if, if we do use it, uh, most people will go with a higher load, so 40 mg per kilo. If you do 20, you, you may end up needing to reload, and, and so you may not be as aggressive up front. Uh, and then just monitoring. And like I mentioned, um, this would be the one time where if you have a patient on a carbapenem, you're going to be in trouble. And, and we have seen patients uh, reports of patients who are on valproic acid and started on a carbapenem uh, and who were very stable and went back into status. When I was a resident, I was I did not understand the severity of that drug interaction. It's one of those you just will, you'll always remember it. So that, that when when you mention that, that stands out to me. It stands out to me as well because the the levels just plummet, and it's almost nothing you can do if you're concomitantly administering them to get a therapeutic level with it. Right. And one of the recommendations I hear often is, because, you know, this, maybe this happens overnight, is, well, let's just check a level in the morning. But you missed the mark already, so it's too late by the next morning. So you really have to 
load another agent, if you can pick another antibiotic, you know, by the time you're starting a carbapenem, you're usually in a tough spot, but um, it, it would be the equivalent of just letting the neurology team know that if you're okay with abruptly stopping valproate, obviously if it's for mood or if you were already going to discontinue it, then that's fine, but mm -hmm. almost always it's not fine, and so it is an important interaction to be aware of and that it does happen pretty quickly. Now, the last two agents, I'm not sure that they are the, you know, workhorses per se of the first three we talked about, but um, lacosamide and brivaracetam. So where do you see, you know, these two agents kind of falling in the, in, you know, in the um, spectrum of therapy? Well, lacosamide has become uh, more popular over the years. I don't think it's worked its way up to that first-line anti-epileptic agent, but certainly many algorithms will include it as second-line. Uh, usually, similar to Keppra, we will give this as a loading dose, anywhere from two or 400 milligrams. There was a small study that actually looked at two versus 400 milligrams and seemed to suggest that maybe 400 had more early termination, uh, but overall there wasn't a big difference, but at least some data sort of supporting that, that higher dose. Um, the, the big risk with lacosamide is PR prolongation. I think we maybe overthink it a little bit. So if you have a patient that doesn't really have cardiac issues, we don't even always get a baseline EKG. There's some data that suggests that uh, the PR prolongation with lacosamide is, is much a much lower incidence than um, we sort of think. So, but that is something to, to certainly consider about certainly consider, uh, especially for a patient with with cardiac issues. Um, another cool thing with lacosamide, so again, similar to Keppra, no drug interactions. Uh, we don't really worry about um, dose adjustment too much. Uh, and for all of these agents, I'll just say, uh, even if patients do have he hepatic or renal dysfunction, uh, that's not really going to affect our bolus dose. So again, you, you really don't have to think about too much. You just want to get the dose into the patient as quickly as possible. Uh, one cool thing with lacosamide is there's uh, some data looking at giving it as an IV push. So I think institutions that have implemented this have moved it higher up on their algorithm because um, the study that was published at the institution that did this saw that the time from when the order was verified to actually given when they changed it from piggyback to push changed from, you know, almost two hours to 35 minutes. And so wow. I know sometimes pharmacists were really terrified, can you really push this, can you not? But that is so meaningful. And Tepra has uh, similar data coming out too with IV push. So those are some things that, those are some, reasons where you may want to consider lacosamide, but I don't think it's, it's worked its way as a first-line agent yet. So one other consideration with lacosamide, um, not on initiation, but on discontinuation, it's pretty hard to get this agent once a patient leaves the hospital. Uh, it's really expensive. It's not always covered. So uh, not something that should necessarily affect your decision to start it, but it is something to think about when you're thinking about which of the you know, eight or so agents that you've started that you now wish to discontinue. It, it's very easy for us to get wrapped up in the in the management of their true critical care issues. So bringing the, the transition of care, you know, perspective, I think is actually really important. That's, um, you know, I just kind of sat back here because I, I haven't had to help, you know, discharge or have somebody find payment for that. So that's a really, really good point when you're, you know, if you're potentially between a few agents or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. And then similar with um, Berberacetam, um, you know, I personally don't really see a role for this agent in status. I know, I know they're marketed as not being 
a Kepra Me Too agent, but that's all I kind of think about. Um, so I couldn't really think of a role where I would use this over Kepra or even um, for a patient who's failed Kepra. And then in addition to that, it is um, it requires dose adjustment and hepatic impairment. And then it has multiple drug interactions with phenytoin and phenobarb. So um, a lot of issues that we don't see with Kepra and not really data and status. So there's some case series that are being published, but um, at least in my opinion, I, I don't see a role. We currently don't have this agent on formulary. So you you alluded to this as we were um, talking about levetiracetam, but there is a fantastic dosing table that um, you know goes over the recommended drug dosing in status epilepticus. Now between that and you kind of mentioned you know drug references like Lexicomp, the doses can be all over the map. You know the the table says the the dose for for levetiracetam is one to three grams. So that's a pretty wide range for the pharmacist who's answering the call overnight or in the evening asking for a Kepra dose recommendation. So, you know, where, when you have students or residents or, you know, you're either working with other pharmacists, where do you, where should we be going to get true evidence-based references for dosing in these neuropatients? Because that is a question that comes up all the time where I work. That's, a, that's an excellent question. You know, I think the guidelines are a great starting point, but the problem is they're a little bit outdated. Um, and now we're setting, we're setting higher and higher doses. So my best bet is a review article. Uh, status is a highly published topic. There are multiple articles. I think there's, you know, several really good articles that come up every year. Uh, Neurocritical Care just published something. So an updated review article to me is the best place. Uh, just to broadly look at evidence-based medicine and if you're not wanting to pull every study. Um, and then uh, really almost every institution has their own protocol uh, or algorithm that they use that's individualized to that particular center. And I think that this is really the most helpful thing to do because this is something that ideally has had input from neurology, neurocritical care, pharmacy, um, there are order sets that align with that guideline. There are medications stocked in the Omnicill or Pixis that are, you know, those earlier line agents. And so, especially in a condition where we don't have evidence that says drug A is better than drug B, whatever we decide, we can just get the fastest drug. And everybody can look at sort of one guidance document and, and know what to do and, and avoid delays. So. Updated review articles are great and certainly educational, but I think using your institutional protocol and, and helping with updating that protocol so it aligns with the most recent data is probably the best approach here. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Now, many of these agents, I think, were, were able to use therapeutic drug monitoring, you know, to kind of um, maximize safety and efficacy. Now, 
Um, I think that there are, you know, obviously initiatives in health systems, you know, across the country, you know, to always minimize costs. And if you work in, you know, hospitals or health centers where you have limited resources, especially by lab, um, sometimes you're not always able to get the best levels possible for a lot of these agents. So I think... The question talking about monitoring here, I think, is kind of twofold. You know, what are some best practice recommendations? And then what are some recommendations for maybe areas that have limited lab resources to still, um, you know, monitor as best we can? Well, I think that whenever possible, we should be able to at least monitor levels. Um, when patients come in, we should be getting admission levels. If they're known to be on antiepileptics, even if those won't come back right away, if they do come back low, that can give us a really clear answer and we could avoid giving them a lot of unnecessary medications. Uh, after that, we'll often get post-load level, total levels, and again, we're not doing epilepsy dosing or management, so we're not getting levels every seven days. We're probably getting them at least daily initially. Now, we are also an institution where we have the ability to order free levels, but they're a send-out. So, like you mentioned, we, we can get the level, but it probably won't result, you know, for three or four days. I do still think that there's utility to getting that, particularly for patients in renal dysfunction, especially dialysis patients, and patients who have low albumin levels, because there's a lot of data that's come out that uh, these total level equation adjustments that we've been using is almost like rolling the dice and they are just not providing us accurate uh, adjustments or uh, estimations of what the free level would be. So what I like to do is order free and total at the same time and then get my daily total levels. And by the time that free level has come back, I can look at the ratio of the free to total and sort of apply that to you know my future total levels. So that, you know, instead of using an equation, I'm really using patient-specific levels to make these adjustments. So, for example, if a normal phenytoin level is 10 to 20 and your free level goal would be 1 to 2, and I have a patient where their total level comes back at 5 and I correct it to 12, but maybe the free came back because they're a dialysis patient or their albumin is 2, and their free is actually 2.9, then that will affect my decision, even if it's a few days later, and I may come down on the dose. So even though you're not necessarily getting that in real time, um, I think it is still helpful, and I think for these agents, because a lot of them have toxicities that we could potentially avoid, we do really need to, to check levels. And But one other thing I'll say is on the admission levels, this would be the one time I'm even okay with getting a Keppra level. So I certainly wouldn't use that to adjust dosing, but just as a marker of whether the patient was compliant, it can be pretty helpful uh, in the future. So kind of is it is it there or is it not? Not using it to guide, you know, any up or down titrations or anything like that. That's what you're saying about the about the Kepra level? Exactly. Well, that is such a great trick, a little clinical pearl. Um, I, I feel vindicated as well. That's what I do. So I was a little nervous when you were answering. So I'm, I'm glad that I'm on Team Corinne. That sounds like the team to be on. Um, 
So if patients don't respond to the first anti-epileptic drug that, that you, know, you administer, and well, I guess we'll say the second, I'll kind of leave the benzos out of this just for a second. How do you decide um, whether to you know, give an additional dose versus you know, add a different agent, right? Give more versus add something else. So we're going to do both. And um, generally, you may check a level if you have the ability to do that, maybe redose, give a mini bolus or go up on the dose to kind of optimize that anti-epileptic that, um, you know, that they seize through. But we would add another agent. And the reason for that, it's just too hard to tell if it was a dosing issue uh, where you may need to redose because, like I said, we're not using epilepsy dosing. We're using status dosing. Um, and the level may take too long to come back. So unless you already have that level and now you've realized the patient is back in status and you see it was low and you have that opportunity to give a mini bolus, generally speaking, we, we would add another AED. Uh, we wouldn't switch. So if you see it through phenytoin, we would not switch you to levetiracetam. Again, like I mentioned before, we're just so nervous that maybe that phenytoin is still having some effects. Uh, and in those early stages of status, you know, this is where you have to throw out your pharmacy hat with the polypharmacy issue. And just remember, that is not a concern here. You are adding multiple agents sequentially. Uh, and remember, the next option is going to be intubation and a general anesthetic. So uh, we want to be very aggressive. If they're not responding, uh, you may redose and you may go up on the dose, but we'll almost always add an agent, remembering that we can titrate down and wean those other agents off uh, when the patient hopefully recovers. So timely treatment is, you know, one of, if not the most important thing. I think that's one of the things that I've that I've gathered from our talk so far. So what has your hospital done? You know, what are some maybe tips or tricks to help make these medications easily available? I mean, do you all have some sort of like a like a neuro code box or kind of like an RSI kit in the Pixis, like a like a status epilepticus kit in the Pixis? Or how what kind of things have have you all implemented to help improve the timeliness? Well, I can tell you, you know, just in general tips and tricks that other institutions have done, um, some that we have, some that we haven't. The IV push dosing, I think, is becoming popular, particularly for Keppra and Leposamide. Um, also remembering that lower doses of phosphenitoin can be given as an IV push. So, for example, if you have a subtherapeutic level and you just need to give a little mini bolus of maybe four or 500 milligrams, that's a drug that would um, can be administered more quickly. Uh, if a patient is intubated already, it never hurts to start a drip. Um, I think sometimes the, the medical team forgets when they put the order for the drug uh, just how long that may take for it to be verified and made and brought to the bedside and then hung by the nurse. So there are so many steps where uh, a propofol drip or something that's easily overridable can just be started right away. And if a patient is already intubated, you know, the tougher decision is for someone who's not intubated. Uh, but if they're already intubated, I think starting a drip while you're waiting um, is really helpful. Stocking the medications in the OmniCell, um, using Advantage bags or things that the, the nurses may be able to sort of make on their own. And then, you know, lastly, I keep harping on this, but really having guidelines, protocols, and order sets. I think the way you can build order sets sometimes is even linking boluses with the infusion so that... Um, you know, the orders are going in correctly and the doses are going in correctly right up front and we're not having to play catch up later. 
Um, those are some of the tips. I, th I think it's just early identification and, and making sure everybody on the team is on the same page, um, ordering the medication stat and making sure that there are no delays in verifying due to the doses uh, being sort of non-traditionally higher than what we may see for other conditions. I mean, it sounds like it's a, just a complete culture and that it all, once you get that, you know, it all, all the positive effects will cascade down. Yes, but certainly a challenge that we deal with um, all the time. So there's no foolproof way of getting these meds to the patient early, just like other critical illnesses that require early aggressive treatment. You know, other places have done code sepsis and things like that. We don't really have that for like a code status, but it certainly is considered a neurologic emergency. And I think the more we think of it that way and really think about these patients, uh, if they're not treated, that, you know, you really may have missed, dropped the ball and, and not be able to treat them later can help get everybody on the same page. Yeah, absolutely. Now, let's kind of take a step back to our, I guess we'll kind of say our theoretical patient here. So, our patient is still in refractory status despite anti-epileptics and benzos. So then generally, the next goal would be birth suppression at this point. So I'm most familiar with using midazolam and or propofol. Um, you know, older options are, of course, the barbiturates. And then there's no way we were going to get through this talk on status epilepticus without talking about ketamine, of course. So... When we get to, you know, you mentioned the IV anesthetic route and kind of like refractory status, what is your um, general, I guess, you know, algorithm as you're starting to think of meds, you know, at this point in therapy? So from a data and experience perspective, any of these three agents would be acceptable. Propofol, midazolam, or pentobarbital as your uh, continuous infusion anesthetic. Now, because of all the side effects associated with pentobarb, most institutions will have either propofol or midazolam and then pentobarb as a lower tier. Now, even between propofol and midazolam, propofol also has a lot of side effects like hypotension, the risk of propofol-related infusion syndrome, particularly at the doses that we're using, which are higher than those traditional sedation doses. And so that has led a lot of institutions to really hone in on midazolam as the drug of choice. Um, you know, the one exception I can think of is, like I said, if your patient is intubated or, you know, as you're initiating someone on uh, an anesthetic, if you just have propofol readily accessible versus midazolam that may need to be compounded, you may start with propofol and then quickly swap out to midazolam. But uh, I would say at our institution, midazolam is our workhorse. And so do you, do you find, you know, because you're using, you know, much higher doses than, than a lot of the other indications, do you find that, you know, you get a lot of complications from, like, fluid overload and some of the things just related to delivering that, that much medication in these patients? I will say that we see a lot of hypotension, again, more with pentobarbital than propofol and midazolam, and probably more with propofol than midazolam um, patients, you know, when you go to turn the midazolam drip off after it's been on for days and days and sometimes weeks. It can take the patient a long time to wake up. So I think the ADRs are certainly more than what we would see with sedation dosing. But like I mentioned, um, we kind of do what we need to do to, to get the patients out of status. One, one thing that you had mentioned, the goal being birth suppression, I think what we're seeing with these patients um, who require a therapeutic coma for so long is that uh, 
there, there are all these complications like infections and things. And, and so maybe our goal shouldn't be birth suppression. Maybe it should be seizure suppression. And, and right now we don't know what, uh, you know, there's no goal that's better than the other. I think some people will say, well, if, if you start the drip and the seizures stop, then you could just leave it there. If not, then you may need to be even more aggressive and, and not just target seizure suppression, but actually take it one step further and target birth suppression. So even there, just as something as simple as having a goal, we don't even know what, what goal is best. So where does where would ketamine kind of fall into this this realm? You know, this um treatment ketamine, uh, just like with almost every other indication, has emerged as, you know, a really hot topic for status. And a few years ago, I would have put ketamine after pentobarb on the algorithm. And I think that we have more and more data really supporting uh, not only the efficacy of ketamine and status, but just a, a more favorable side effect profile. And so I think where we see ketamine now is as an add-on. So we wouldn't use it as our first anesthetic, but we would potentially add it to someone on propofol and midazolam before starting pentobarb. And the nice thing about ketamine is, one, the hemodynamics are better, so you're much less likely to see hypotension. In fact, you can even see hypertension. Um, so patients who are requiring pressors, there's some data that they were able to be weaned off of pressors after starting ketamine. And two, you could actually start ketamine, titrate down your other anesthetics like propofol or midazolam, and then be able to extubate the patient while they're on the ketamine infusion. So uh, that's a huge advantage, and that's something that we didn't have before. So I think ketamine really has moved up in the algorithm at a lot of institutions but it's still kind of finding its true place because we're just finding, we're learning more and more about its role as, as time goes on. Correct. And we're trying to make sure we have access to it when it's not on shortage. <laughs> that the, the drug shortage you deal with is probably just a completely other, other animal. Um, now, you mentioned that status epilepticus is, is a neuroemergency. Um, and, you know, just kind of like any other um, emergencies, you know, what are what are things that, you know, pharmacists can do to really assist and be valuable in these situations? You know, I think, like I mentioned, and this is why I love status, we can assist in every part of the process. So from the very beginning, before you even see a patient of helping develop a protocol and an order set, um, helping select an agent, dose the agent correctly, so knowing, you know, not every patient is going to get one gram of phenytoin, um, looking for renal and hepatic considerations, looking for drug interactions, and maybe even using that to change the agent. Uh, and then finally, in getting involved in research and education. So status is one of uh, the biggest things I do education on because there is so much opportunity um, to, to optimize therapy and to get therapy to patients faster if people just know what to look for and what to do in those early hours. Um, so that's where I would, I would put pharmacist role in everything, I guess. <laughs> well, Corinne, all this information has been extremely valuable, you know, unbelievably helpful, you know, especially for someone like myself who, you know, routinely doesn't treat, um, these, this patient population, you know, what would you say, you know, if you, if you had to summarize or boil it down a, a few take home points, um, about, you know, treating status epilepticus? So these are my these are my four things: be fast, 
be aggressive, monitor, and individualize. We talked about this throughout the, the podcast, but you, you want to be really fast. So the drug of choice is the drug that you can get to as quickly as possible. Uh, this is not where we're going to worry about polypharmacy. This is not where we're going to, you know, renally adjust the loading dose. Just get the dose into the patient. Uh, be aggressive. So we're going to use higher than normal doses. We're not going to use LexiComp uh, to help guide us with dosing. We're going to use other resources like guidelines and studies. Uh, use loading doses. Also uh, monitoring, and not just monitoring uh, AED levels, but also for um, ADRs like LFTs and hypotension and things like that. Um, and then finally, this is the coolest part, is individualizing therapy. So this is really a condition where pharmacists can use everything you know about the patient and the pharmacology, uh, kind of practicing at the top of our licenses to uh, pick the drug that is most appropriate to that patient. And even if you don't do that uh, right up front, as you're weaning down, and maybe the patient is now on six or seven or eight agents, uh, you can really try to assess what would be best for the patient to remain on as, as you're weaning things off. I love it. And keeping it simple for us as well. Corinne, thank you so much for joining us. I really, really appreciate taking the time, and, and this was great. Thanks so much for having me on. Another huge thank you to Corinne Berger for taking the time to join us. And I also want to give a massive thank you to you, the listeners. This podcast doesn't exist without you, so thank you. And please send me feedback, both positive and negative, as well as any guest or topic ideas via Twitter or Instagram at pharmacy to dose. That's T O dose, or via email, pharmacy to dose at gmail.com. On our website, pharmacytodose.com, you'll find the show notes that include background reading, the status epilepticus treatment guidelines, articles that we reference in this discussion, and much more. Honestly, I'd love to hear from each and every one of you. And then finally, we are still searching for a podcast sponsor. So if you are interested or have any connections that could help, please let me know. Until next time, I'm Nick Peters, and this is Pharmacy to Dose the Critical Care Podcast.